the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. Now, this, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, don't work at all. It's, it's just a no, crap to some nothing. people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a baller. He's a playmaker and a shot smaller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538, and with me back in the studio all together again, guys. Yeah. Got, the, Payne, got the crew Kay back Fagan, together. The crew. Neil, while we were out of the office last week at Tuesday, when we tape, what were you doing? Oh, that's corner, a sobbing? Were you, were you just Question. sitting in the studio? Just I was at, yeah, crying? I was sitting right here, and I was wondering where everyone was. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to look at your Outlook uh, invites? Uh... Welcome back, guys. Happy to have you here. On today's show, we're going to talk about Zach Granke, who is closing in on Oral Hershiser's scoreless inning streak, and we'll make sense of whether that's impressive or not in an era of a pitcher-dominated Major League Baseball. Uh, we'll also talk about Elena Deladon, who is destroying the WNBA, but is she having the best season of basketball ever for man or woman, as a recent piece alleged? Uh, and then finally, we'll talk to writer Zach Schoenbrunn about how neuroscience may be the next frontier for sports analytics, and of course, Allison McCann will come by for our SIG dig. You guys want to jump right in to Granky? Let's do it. Like Let's do hot. it. Granky's hot. So he's been f- like fiercely good this year. He started 19 games, and he's allowed 19 earned runs over those 19 games. None of those runs have come in the last 43 and two-thirds innings. He's 15 and two-thirds shy of Oral Hershiser's all-time scoreless streak, and it's going to be much closer to that pretty soon because he's playing the Mets on Friday. <laughs> so <laughs> he'll probably tack on if he made six or seven extra on top. What are we to make of the streak? I mean, Tim Kirkjian says that we should be odd. And here's our first hot take of the week. It's incredible. He's made 19 starts this year. He's given up 19 earned runs. In 15 of his 19 starts, he's allowed one or zero runs. And what he's doing now is ridiculous. And you're right, he's not Greg Maddox. That's the sixth best pitcher of all time. But he pitches an awful lot yeah. like him, but he throws a little bit harder, which makes it even harder well, to hit. So what I'm trying to figure out here is I'm told all the time but that by, by Sabermetrics websites that I read in the dark corners of the Internet that pitching dominates baseball now. And that it's a pitcher's league. So does that make what Granke is doing less impressive than when Hershiser did it, when there was a bit more batting in the, in the league? Well, uh, the year that Hershiser put up the 59 consecutive scoreless innings was 1988. And the league's ERA, I think, was a little bit lower that year than it is now. We hear about all of the pitching, but I think uh, the thing that plays that up in our perception is also the extremely high number of strikeouts that there are now, which uh, definitely is higher than there were in 1988. But generally, I think it's uh, like just slightly lower uh, scoring environment in 1988 than it is so far in 2015. Which might surprise that suggests people. that Kirchner was right that what what's happening here really is that impressive and and, and that. in that sense, yeah, yeah. It, it feels like people in one era always want to look back on the other and pretend like 
things were perfect back then and let's discredit the present. And But the other thing, and I don't know if we could even possibly have an answer for this, right? But it's it's Oral Hershiser and then also Don Drysdale with the other, this, with the, number, well, he's, he's number two now, right? With um, scoreless innings, possibly, you know. Zach will will break that record, but like, how is it all L.A. Dodgers? Like, what's <laughs> well, going on? Well, the park on? is really big, right? I mean, I think it was the, it, when Drysdale was doing it, it was the biggest. It was the it was the park that was most pitcher friendly, right? Uh, and then when Hershiser did it, was the third most pitcher friendly park. I don't know what Dodger Stadium is now, um, but it could be that there's something about playing at home. I, I don't know how many Granky starts have happened at home, but certainly. There are some environmental effects that, that could that could change it. Well, and, and even last week, it, it was last week on our stat show, we talked about a lot of the different hitting stats that then get adjusted for the ballpark. So I'm wondering, and I'm not sure if we have this the stat handy, but like the their ballpark, how was it adjusted in those in those hitting stats? Because wouldn't we see some semblance of how people think of the park and how we should adjust for? how hitter-friendly it is or pitcher-friendly? Yeah, I mean, it totally shows up in the pitching stats. Like, we talked, uh, we haven't talked about the pitching yet, but there are the equivalents of, we talked about OPS Plus and Work Plus uh, last week, and uh, the in- inversion of that, the, uh, the pitcher side of it, you also adjust for it. And the Dodgers in 1968, which was when Don Drysdale uh, had his uh, 58 consecutive innings, uh, they runs were eight percent scarcer at Dodger Stadium than they were in the rest of Major League Baseball. In '88, when Hershiser had his streak, they were only about three percent scarcer. Uh, and so far this season, Dodger Stadium has suppressed run scoring by about two or three percent. So definitely during the heyday of uh, Don Drysdale uh, and, and that staff that at one point had Sandy Koufax and all these great pitchers, they were also helped by this incredible park and and it's kind of dialed back in in recent decades it seems but it's still better to pitch there than in an average park for sure so there are some other differences that are going on which is how pitchers are handled in today's game versus in the past drysdale his streak featured six straight complete game shutouts whereas granky has never been to the ninth inning in his streak and this is coming from Joe Sheehan's newsletter. This is this great baseball stats newsletter that costs like 30 bucks a year and is my favorite thing to read about baseball. Um, and he points out that because Grinky's not going as deep into the game, perhaps, or that means he's not seeing the lineup as many times. And what we know is that pitchers get worse as they see the lineup uh, repeatedly throughout a game. That's partly mm-hmm. because they tire, and it's also partly because hitters pick up on pitches and maybe be able to recognize some things a little better. And so perhaps Granke's accomplishment, while still as impressive as, you know, we right. should we should make it be, it's a different kind of accomplishment because he's not having to face the same batters three times, four times. Okay. And it's hard for me to totally compare to that because I haven't you know, I haven't been a pitcher in baseball. But if you take something like basketball and take like consecutive free throws it's actually harder if you're not someone who's getting to the line 12 to 15 times a game and you're somebody who's getting to the line two to four times a game to maintain that consecutive make streak because there's so much separation. Between, there's no flow. There's no rhythm. You're not knocking off game after game. Um, you know, you're not having 50 or 60 consecutive after five or six games. So that's harder. So I almost think, is there anything to say to like, okay, so Drysdale had all these complete games, but he also was able to get into a rhythm each game and knock off even additional shutout innings faster. Whereas in some ways you could say what Granky is doing 
could be harder, and I don't know how it works with baseball, but it could be harder because he has to get up for each start with this on the line and all these added factors. The trick is, though, that what the numbers suggest is that the beginning of games is better for pitchers. I think the first inning, though, there's the most runs, and then after that it tails off. Is that right? Because they can settle in and realize what their pitches are like. So that suggests that it might be different than 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 uh, than how in, sometimes in streaks work yeah. in other yeah. sort of like consecutive. But I think also like the way lineups were constructed, particularly during like the '60s and before that, where you would have you would be able to take certain batting order slots off like not just the opposing pitcher but a lot of times like the shortstop or you know the the second baseman would be a light hitting defense first player that you really didn't have to kind of give your best stuff all the time and now i think the way that uh in major league baseball lineups are constructed you have to be on your guard i feel like for you know the the majority of of hitters uh unless you're playing the mets unless you're playing the mets and then uh something else that kind of and then it's just steven mats that you have to be on your guard and now he's not even in the game that's very sad Anyway, so uh, yeah, something else that kind of cuts in, uh, I guess, in uh, in Grinky's favor of how impressive it is, is just that he's having to throw more pitches the way, like we talked about, strikeouts being more prevalent to get the same number of innings because it's an innings based streak uh, mm. because strikeouts and walks, uh, but particularly strikeouts are, are more prevalent and they require more pitches to get to uh, than than just a regular out that you have to throw more to get the same number of innings to to, to have the 59 consecutive so you're saying streak. we should adjust the streak to the number of consecutive pitches without a run scored well maybe yeah. so I mean it, that would be more precise right. and also the data for that probably doesn't exist uh, historically that sounds like a data project for Neil Payne <laughs> yeah, right. go back and watch them all um, of but I think uh, maybe the thing that we're kind of missing in all of this is just kind of questioning, should we really even be impressed by these streaks that, um, you know, sometimes uh, we we kind of as baseball fans love these streaks and we, we love the idea of someone being able to do something uninterrupted and, and feel that pressure and still be able to deliver it. And we love hitting streaks for sure. Uh, but at the same time, it, it really does require a lot of luck in addition to skill to be able to make maintain one of these streaks uh, and for instance uh, it, we've seen research m- over many years now showing that your batting average allowed on balls in play uh, is sort of a function of your defense and it's sort of a function of luck and it's not really that much of a function of you as a pitcher uh, and, and your quality as a pitcher and Granke is the player this year if you look at fan graphs and they have a thing that kind of breaks out how many wins uh, were prevent you know in terms of runs being prevented while you're on the mound how many wins the team was worth in that and then how many of those were due to the pitcher himself and how many were due to the defense and scattering hits instead of clustering hits Uh, and the player that has the biggest difference between those two win categories in other words you could say that this is you could it could be construed that this is the luckiest pitcher in baseball, it's Zach Greinke, and he's been particularly lucky uh, during this streak that he has. But so. Hershiser must have gotten lucky. Hershiser right? did get lucky. Uh, but then there was also you know, all the data showing that certainly luck is coming into play, but the qu- the quality of his pitching and the percentage we could expect a scoreless inning from him is high compared to the uh, uh, an average pitcher, and then. What somebody needs to explain to me is how, as you move forward in a scoreless streak, if you have a higher percentage of being a scoreless inning, all of a sudden it it extrapolates to this ridiculously different percentage from somebody even just 5%. Somebody explain this. So Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs, this is a piece that we all read before we sat down, um, I thought put it well, and he he offered a hypothetical. And he wrote, um, Pete, 
pitcher one holds the opponent scoreless in 80% of his innings, while Steve holds the opponent scoreless in 75% of his innings. It seems like a pretty small difference, Sullivan writes, but Pete is twice as likely to go on a 10-inning scoreless streak as Steve, even though they only have a 5 percentage point difference. Neil, do you want to explain how that is about exponential <laughs> percentage multiplication, run-on effects, whatever? Well, let me put on my uh, Statman cape. <laughs> and then, no, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just multiplication, like the fact that you're compounding these together, inning after inning after inning, really adds up over the course of a lot of innings, you you start to see the separation happen because you're not just adding the differences, you're actually multiplying them together. So point, so 80% every inning is 0.8 times 0.8 in order to get to through two innings scoreless. Right. Whereas 75% would be 0.75 times 0.75, so that would be 0.64 versus 0.525 maybe off the nice. top of my head. Maybe. Wow. Um, I got this editor job at Five for a reason, but I also might have gotten the math wrong, which I have a feeling our listeners will tell me. But the point is that that all once you start to multiply it, all of a sudden the gap becomes exaggerated every time that you multiply because it gets bigger and bigger every inning. And so that's why if Granky can do eighty percent scoreless innings, he's much more likely to do it than Bartolo Colon, let's say, who could do seventy five percent. Well, and Neil, if you said earlier that maybe we shouldn't put as much value in some this kind of scoreless streak or any kind of streak like this because there's so much luck involved, would we also say the same thing about a no-hitter then? I mean, I guess a no-hitter is technically a very small uh, streak of consecutive innings without a hit allowed. And it's kind of the same thing of, you know, the types of people in general – Good pitchers are going to be more likely to throw no-hitters, but we've also seen some pitchers that are pretty forgettable throw no-hitters over the years. This year uh, against uh, the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, No comment. <laughs> and uh, so I think that does speak to this, the fundamental nature of streaks is to take a sport like baseball, which is really a large sample sport or it's a long-run sport, and to compress it into a short run or a small sample and we marvel over what happens within that small sample but luck is going to creep in the smaller you make the sample uh and one of the great stats is uh, you know during the 56 game hitting streak by Joe DiMaggio uh Ted Williams had a higher batting average than DiMaggio during the the run of that streak so you know we we can get caught up in these streaks because they fe- I, I think the pressure and the human element of it is what is compelling about it in, in no small part but uh, it's it's possible that we assign too much meaning to the streak when uh, there are things that are kind of bigger picture that are happening that are more impressive, but we're not as compelled by it for whatever reason. Right, and and Grinky seems to be pitching fire right now, and and even in in one of the pieces, you know, when when the backup catcher came up to speak to him, and he's like, it doesn't matter what you call because everything I'm throwing right now is working. And if you look at even some of the the data or the graphs that show what his pitch, what his pitches, his fastball specifically has looked like during this streak. I mean, he has hit spots. So of course, we're we're there's so much luck in terms of maintaining that streak. But the way his pitch control during this has just been phenomenal. Especially some of the graphs that we'll link to, you know, on the on the hot takedown page are, are pretty impressive. Right. There are no fastballs going down the middle. None. Like, they're all going to the left or right side of the plate. Yeah. There's none going down the pipe. And and even just before his streak, like one week before, he's throwing fastballs, and some of them are you know wandering out over the middle of the plate. So real quick, and then we have to move on. I want to talk about Bryce Harper's comments um, about Granky because. Because it's basically a hot take. So Harper and the Nats played uh, against Granke uh, earlier this week, I think over the weekend. And he, he said that um, it's easier to go on a scoreless streak, essentially, when you're getting calls, quote, six inches off the plate. 
Um, fighting words when you start questioning the umpire and the pitcher's worth. Um, so, Neil, you looked into this a little bit. Is it true that Granky is getting calls off the plate, or as I think, Kate, maybe you put it before the show started, a Jordan effect? Yeah. Well, uh, so his catcher, Yasmani Grandal, uh, is known as being one of the best catchers in baseball at pitch framing, which means he basically tricks the umpire. He, steals, he leads the majors in pitch framing matches. Yeah, he, he steals strikes uh, off the corner and, and kind of makes pitches that otherwise wouldn't be considered strikes. Or he strikes. ensures that strikes happen. That's Maybe right. That's right. Them. He makes them happen. Why wouldn't every catcher be awesome at that? That seems because like Because some don't pretty... concentrate on it, right? Really? That's like saying, that's... why wouldn't every pitcher be good at bunting? I don't, you know, because some, some don't. Well, some of it, that that's a skill set you know but the pitch oh, framing seems like just focus on framing <laughs> that pitch back to the center of the plate but you're also following it as it comes down and then not over exaggeratingly bringing up usually good pitch framers actually don't move at all they keep it where it is so part of it is you don't want to drop with the pitch as the breaking ball comes in you know a lot of that is like rebounding in basketball Hmm. You, sometimes you're like, be. just go get the rebound, but it's really about seeing the arc of the ball and, knowing the and angle. being able to go where, see where it's going to come off the rim. So you're saying pitch framing in a way is like that. You, you're kind of seeing the angle of yeah, the ball coming yeah, in. Yeah, Grandal is uh, Dennis Rodman, maybe. I, I, but, <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same idea where I think you have to know when to move the glove when it doesn't have really any chance of being a strike if you frame it properly and kind of you just have to stop the, the ball and knowing when you can kind of leave it and being able to track it in. And maybe, uh, yeah, it's, it, it really is a skill, though. It persists across seasons, and the same guys that are good at it tend to be very good at it the next year. But then uh, something that might suggest that, you know, Grinky isn't getting an unusual number of calls is I looked at uh, the number, the proportion of a guy's strikes thrown that were looking strikes. So, you know, the, the batter is letting them go in, and the, the umpire is calling it a strike. And if you look at Grinky so far this season, 25.4% uh, of his strikes have been looking and the overall National League average is 26.3%. So he, if anything, is getting fewer-looking strikes relative to all of his strikes. Uh, than... Maybe when I looked at that game log <laughs> that Harper played against him, he had eight called, Granky had eight called strikes outside the strike zone. So we'll, we'll see. Okay, so let's, let's leave it there. And maybe we'll, if Granky's still hurling fire like this, by the time the next hot takedown comes around, Could he'll be, still be on the score Yeah, record-worthy. And now let's hear a message from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week, as always, is SeatGeek, the smartest way for fans to save money on sports tickets. We're about to talk about Elena Deladon at the WNBA Chicago Sky, and SeatGeek can help you see her live. The last place Atlanta Dream are in Chicago tonight, Tuesday night, and there's a 91 deal score to be had on a ticket to see Deladon. Section 111, row F, a prime seat to see perhaps the person having the greatest basketball season of all time. More to come on that in a minute. And along with that ticket, the smug satisfaction of knowing you got a hell of a deal at a great price, thanks to SeatGeek's deal score algorithm, which, of course, takes into account past precedent for the event, where the market's headed, etc. When you buy that ticket to see Elena Del Don, be sure to use promo code TAKEDOWN in the SeatGeek app to get a $20 rebate, assuming it's your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek is your ticket to sports this summer. All right, let's talk about Del Don, who is leading the WNBA in points, leading the WNBA in minutes played, second in the WNBA in rebounds, second in WNBA in blocks. The third year forward out of Delaware is really just destroying the league, so much so that Howard Megdahl at Vice Sports wrote a piece that said this, and, and uh, maybe one of you guys can do a dramatic reading for, for the hot take. He wrote, 
She is having so far something like the greatest individual basketball season anyone has ever seen. Right. So two key nuances in that sentence. And I, I like Howard. He's written a lot about how the Mets are broke. I'm a big fan of his work. She's having so far, which I think we should definitely talk about, um, something like the greatest individual basketball season. His evidence for this is that Deladon posted a 40.9 player efficiency rating. Neil, you want to do a quick rundown of PER? Yeah, so that's just a per minute uh, barometer of a player's box score stats, basically. So um, rebounds, points, steals, mm-hmm, blocks, mm-hmm. etc. Okay, so 40.9 PER over the first 10 games of the WNBA, uh, WNBA season. No one else in the history of either the NBA or WNBA, Megdal writes, has ever topped 35. So she's higher than where anyone has ever ended a season. LeBron has never topped 32. Neither did Will Chamberlain. The year he scored 100 points in a game uh, and averaged 50.4 points per contest included. So, guys, do we think it's legit that Deladon is indeed having the greatest basketball season of all time, regardless of gender? Well, uh, those stats, I mean, the bone that I had to pick with that is that though the PER that he listed was through 10 games, uh, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of players in the NBA have had 10-game stretches, like Jordan, if you look at his best 10-game stretch, certainly LeBron. LeBron's might have been in the NBA final, included the NBA finals this year, uh, had that high of a PER. The thing is that none, no one has sustained it over 82 games, and that's a, that's a lot different than being able to sustain it in 10 games. And in fact, since he wrote that, what was she at, 40, 41? Mm-hmm. Uh, now she's down to a, a hair under 36 just over the last six games. So as you can see, uh, that you know, even that can cause you to regress to the mean. And I think, you know, I don't know what her true PER talent is necessarily, but her career mark, uh, including this season, is 29, which is extraordinarily high, uh, but it's not 40, and it's not higher than, than some of the best seasons that LeBron or, or Michael Jordan had. And I was actually baffled to see that right now she's only shooting 22% from three, which was down from, I think it was 36% last year for her in the WNBA, and then 44%, which is great the first year, and for her to be putting up both the points per game number and the PER rating with that three-point shooting, at least there's room for improvement there for for certain numbers to bounce back up even higher with with the PER. Um, But I guess, and let me offer some sort of like philosophical take on whether it's the greatest basketball season of all time, because... I think because we're in such an early stage of the WNBA um, in the league's history, history, like I mean, we, right? We're we're kind of the equivalent of like the mid '60s in NBA. There's still a lot of evolution to take place with women's basketball. And I think what would be more fair to say is we're seeing the evolution. A player who's evolving the women's game, who's doing things and and playing in a way that. Uh, a, we've, we haven't seen a, a lot of women play um, because even Tarazi, Diana Tarazi, you know, when she first came into the league seven, eight years ago, I mean, she came in 10 years ago, but then once she started to, f- to find her stride, she was doing things differently because she was like a six foot guard. And now here comes Elena. She's six foot five and she's leading the league in blocks and she's leading the league in so many different things that it's absolutely bringing the women's game forward and I think changing the style of play. But I think that when you say like the greatest basketball season of all time, you also have to factor in the level of the spotlight and importance and, you know, um, 
pressure. And I think you do have to factor all of these things in. So you want intangibles included in your greatest conversation. Yeah, and I think maybe it will be fair to say some WNBA player, once that game has continues to evolve, as I think it will, um, as financially it continues to get its feet under it and we see more and more generations of players enter, it's possible that we could talk about this down the road as um, the greatest season ever, male or female. But right now I would say what we're seeing from Elena is – uh, the 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 evolution of the WNBA and the style that it should be going toward. That's interesting about whether or not superlatives can happen before something like a league matures. You know, whether or not you need to have the the peak. Because during our baseball conversation, Kate, you mentioned that we always like to romanticize past eras as the ideal era. So. But now it seems like we're romanticizing future eras as the ideal era, you know, like we're, we're only ready to admit that something can be a sound accomplishment or like the greatest cool. accomplishment when it happens in the ideal Petri right. or something. Well, I think what, I, what I'm saying is like you can look back on almost every league's history and you find as they reach a certain growth point, there's a dynasty, right? And in a way, it's because the league hasn't leveled off yet in terms of all of the balancing factors and having enough generations of athletes come in and stabilizing to a certain point. And I think that in a way it's kind of what you're seeing with Elena now is like the WNBA is still growing and it hasn't stabilized yet in terms of the style of play and the number of teams and certain factors. And even the way we statistically analyze women's sports isn't there yet. So like I couldn't even find her war, you know, I don't even I, I'm sure that there must be some dark corner of the Internet that does have the war for the WNBA, but it's not a readily available statistic. So I think it's more like I see this as a certain moment in time for the WNBA and her play. I hope we'll get some people to tune in, especially if Chicago can go to the WNBA finals and pay attention to what she's doing. But I think you kind of have to have that league stabilize first. Yeah, and I think you hit on a really fascinating point about the maturity of the league. And uh, just maybe this isn't a coincidence that this is the 18th year of the WNBA, and you're having Elena Deladon put up these PER numbers or whatever kind of numbers you want. Wilt Chamberlain's best season by PER was 1963, and that was in the 16th year of the NBA or its predecessor, the BAA's existence. So it really is these remarkable singular performances are, are coming at the same stage almost in the evolution of these leagues. It's interesting, too, that her usage rate, the way that the team uses her, is so different than in, in the men's game. And I thought this is an interesting sort of question for us to puzzle over out of Megdal's piece, which is that even if, let's say, she was having, let's say she finished the season with a, with a 41-player efficiency rating, she, if, if also the trend held after just that 10-game sample, um, or I guess my, my stats are now from the, full, the fuller sample that has a few more games in it, she's being used at 28.2% of the possessions uh, on the court, which would put her somewhere between Blake Griffin and Monte Ellis in the NBA. Now, the women's game is vastly different about how they distribute the ball, is my understanding. And Kate, I'm curious for your thoughts on this. But it, it does a great player, does a player who has the greatest season ever, need to be a player who's used a lot? Or do we think that the, the, a team doesn't have to revolve around a player just for them to be great? Well, it, it's interesting because the first part of that is this discussion of usage rate and how women's basketball players are used differently than than men's basketball players and I and I don't know for sure how we analyze the the data on this but at least from my playing experience 
you're always going through all five players more. You're passing the ball more around because you're not solely reliant on this overwhelming athleticism. And I've always felt like in end-of-game situations at the NBA level, it often boils down to one athletic Hero moment. Yeah. And women's basketball, and it's going toward that more now that you have players like Tarazi and Elena Deladon, but there were less end of game, fewer end of game moments that were eye popping because you often have to set up a play. And then within that play, you have to have eight things go right. You got to set the right screen. You got to make sure you're dribbling off it. You got to step back. You got to pat. You got to do all these different things that then introduce risk that make it less likely that you're going to have this hero ball, amazing moment at the end of games because you don't have that singular athletic ability. And I think when you, to bring it back to usage rate, I think it's just, it, that actually plays out throughout the course of a game in a lot of ways because you don't you have very few moments where you're just like go to work in the same way it's usually like you need a couple players involved but Elena is changing that a little bit because she can do things now that we have seen very few women's basketball players be able to do so her usage rate I I mean I think it will it seems like it's going to steadily go up if you listen to Pokey Chapman their coach talk about how they're trusting her more and more her decision making and giving her the ball and letting it run through her well, I'd say after uh, after those numbers that she's putting up, but yeah, I mean, it, it, something that struck me was just that you know Chamberlain when he they, they can't track usage rates specifically during the years, but they can estimate it, and he was estimated at like you know nearly forty percent usage rate when he had his big fifty points per game season, which kind of seems low almost uh, given fifty points a game, but they scored a lot more back then. And then the for the modern era, the gold gold standard is Kobe Bryant in two thousand six. That you know the year he scored 81 in a game he had a, about a 39 percent usage rate so you're saying like the the people that put up the notable statistical seasons in basketball in, in on the men's side are like you know high 30 like 35 to 40 percent usage but they're really uniformly not below 30 like Deladon is right now and in order to have those kinds of statistical numbers while maintaining that low of a usage really have to be incredibly efficient and maybe mm-hmm. that's the trade-off that's being ha- that's happening there's this effect called skill curves uh, on the men's side uh, there's been some research into this that shows that basically the more of the slice of the pie that you take up on offense the harder it is for you to maintain a level of efficiency and that culminates in you know Allen Iverson having a usage of like 39 for the 2001 Sixers and being below average in terms of like you know efficiency uh, and so at the other other end of the spectrum Maybe this is what we're seeing with Deladon, where she has found the the right sweet spot between not too much usage, and it allows her to be super efficient. But then maybe if the team needs her to be more, you know, take on a bigger role, she can give up some efficiency to make her teammates better. Also, that's not. I mean, maybe there's a stat that already does this, right? But but is there a stat that finds the player's usage rate and then also their efficiency rate? But and you know i don't i'm not good with math but like creates that mm-hmm. that nexus point where they're actually not going overboard in usage to the detriment but like finding that sweet spot well, wouldn't it, would it depend on each player like robert ory for example probably shouldn't be used that often but that he was used sparingly maybe helps him hit those big three pointers in those major spots of the game and you wouldn't want him to try and dribble the ball more or, you know or whatever but the spot up in three spot up and shoot players maybe like Right, the so different categories would need different sweet spots. Right, it would maybe? be like what's a what is a player's optimum usage rate? Mm-hmm. And but some you know some players, it's like even though their optimum, 
optimal usage rate is one thing. They want it to be another thing. <laughs> that's true, yeah. And DeAndre Jordan, I think, is one of those <laughs> players. Uh, it's interesting that you guys should bring this up because when I was writing the Basketball Reference blog years and years ago, I did a little study like this. It's basically an optimization problem where you're trying to figure out how to maximize the team's efficiency by you know, parceling out the uh, usage rates of the players and then also having like discount rates on you know if you boost Mario Ellie's uh, usage rate from like 12% to 22%, percent he's going to take a hit on his efficiency and the problem is knowing what the trade-off is though and and dean oliver who used to be with espn and is now with the sacramento kings he had different trade-off rates for different types of players like he classified three ways of like a low usage mid usage and high usage player uh, but even that kind of gives some strange results and and you know i i did this study where i was looking at the 1995 rockets because they were of particular interest they uh their most efficient player was clyde Drexler, but he really wasn't using that many possessions, only about like 20%. And their highest usage player was Hakeem Olajuwon, but he wasn't really all that efficient. So my thought was, well, was there a way that uh, Rudy Tomjanovich could have, you know, kind of reparceled out the possessions on that team to make it more efficient? And on paper, that is true, but uh, it, it gave some wacky results where you should give all of Hakeem's extra possessions to Drexler, and that's where the sweet spot is. And I don't think that a lot of people at that point would have said that since you know the the real life result was pretty good in fact uh so i think knowing those trade-offs is the real problem with that and i think that needs more research okay listeners please let us know what the three of our ideal efficiency versus usage rates are <laughs> by emailing us at contact at 538.com or tweeting at us or leaving comments on the on the pay, hot takedown page on 538 okay let's move from the wnba now to the future of analytics, probably baseball analytics, but maybe sports analytics in general. With us in the studio is Zach Schoenbrunn, a regular contributor to the New York Times, uh, and as well to SB Nation uh, last week when he wrote a long feature called Take Me Out to the Brain Game. And it wondered whether or not the next frontier is neuroscience for analytics. We talked last week, we talked in the stat school about sort of how analytics had evolved from one stat to the next stat to the next stat, but maybe we're, we have to stop thinking about what's on the field and, and maybe what's sort of innate in, in players. Um, as one of the main characters in the piece, Jason Sherwin, uh, said to Zach, you know the Disney movie Million Dollar Arm about um, referring to the two pitching prospects who were discovered in India? We're helping baseball teams find the million dollar brain. So, Zach, welcome to Hot Take Time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pleasure. So, how did the story come about? How do you find these two guys? And, and you know, are they plucky upstarts who are trying to make this happen? Or is there some adoption in, in baseball for trying to look at, um, look at what's happening in, in players' brains and figure out if they're going to be any good? Yeah. Yeah. So, I wish I had an interesting story to tell you about how I found these guys. But really, it was, it was happenstance. I happened to be glancing through a columbia uh publication one of their alumni magazines and they had done a little story about about these two guys um this was last november um they were just really starting out in this uh this field of what their their company um was uh was getting involved in um and i found them you know really intriguing i thought what they were doing was different um from what i'd kind of seen around a little bit about neuroscience and baseball and neuroscience and sports um so I reached out to them and uh, and and started kind of you know talking about what they're doing and I and I wanted to take a deep deeper dive into what exactly is going on with neuroscience, um, what they're doing, what they're trying to do, and give um, a give a rundown of exactly what what they are doing. So they're having players yeah. take a test. 
So, so what they're doing is, is they're the first and only, as far as I know and as far as they know, to actually use an EEG or an electrode cap, um, which I describe as a luminescent swim cap, basically, that they w- have the players wear as they're playing a very basic video simulation. And it's just a pitch coming in, and they tap a key on the keyboard to swing or to not swing. And what that electrode cap is able to do is sort of register or monitor or measure when exactly the decision is being made um, that is the decision to swing or the decision not to swing because it's a conscious decision to let the pitch go by if it's not what they want. Um, That's sort of basically, you know, what they're doing. They're also able to measure some other things like concentration levels and uh, a few different other metrics. But the main gist is is this decision of whether to swing or not to swing. and with that data, this is, you know, very novel, unique data that no one's really able been able to quantify before. And they're able to get a very precise measurement down to the millisecond of when that decision is made. So that's what they're now talking to teams about possibly using. Now, when you talk about measuring players, I guess the next step would be at least to have some sort of measuring tool to see what actual major league baseball players like what their timing looks like compared to the case studies that they did are they anywhere near being able to get some of that data from actual professionals whose reaction times must be you would think yeah and maybe it would show us that they're not as great some of them is not not as great as we think but is that the next step for them yes um they're they're close they visited four spring training complexes this uh this spring um they were mostly working as far as i know with minor league players but um they're also Starting as they get build a bitter, bigger relationship with teams, they're going to start to yeah evaluate um, major league players. Uh, right now, what they've found as they've done mostly college players and also minor league is that there's a, a great degree of variance uh, among even teammates on the same team in, in terms of the numbers of this decision. Uh, of the numbers of how they make this decision. So it's almost as, as big a spectrum as batting averages. And so, you know, you have a guy hitting 300, but his pitch recognition might be somewhere around 350 milliseconds. And then from there you go, you can find other guys uh, on the team that are batting 250 and have a two, two, 250 millisecond pitch recognition metric. So they've found a, a big degree of variance. And so from there you might be able to extrapolate that maybe there's a big difference. So then if it's not that correlated, does that suggest that maybe it actually doesn't tell us that much? Well, I think it's a good question. Um, there's still a lot of questions about what exactly these numbers are telling us. You're right. And, and that's going to take time for teams uh, to figure out and to use. And so um, one thing, there's sort of two ways that, that teams might go about using this sort of data and information. And one is scouting, as, as I talk about in the story. Um, you know, you might be able to, uh, to, um, to find players who uh, have certain you know you might be able to target certain players that have this these numbers that you're looking for in terms of what what it means to recognize a pitch uh, quickly versus a player who's who's not recognizing pitches very quickly um, so it might open up uh, a whole new channels in scouting or you know the other side is player development and that if you have a player who seems to be struggling on the field but you can't quite pinpoint you know why that is you know you can then use this as another metric to to say okay, well, he's not recognizing pitches as well as some of his teammates, or he may, may not be recognizing a certain pitch as well as his teammates. And so from there, you might you can then coach or train, and that's kind of up to the coaches or the trainers to figure out what to do from there. Yeah, and that's an interesting question of, um, like, the, they have different pitch shapes. 
Uh, so are there people that maybe are better at recognizing, you know, a fastball shape versus a curveball shape coming at them? And so maybe that could give you an idea of what you need to spend more time at the batting cage working on? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the simulation at this point is really only fastball, slider, and curveball. Um, and it's not coming at different shapes. It's more at the kind of the direction it's moving, um, the pitch is moving. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, they're, they are able to um, pinpoint, uh, like I said, the decision, the, the precise moment of the decision um, based on each individual pitch. So, yeah, there are certainly going to be some, uh, some players who um, find that they're extremely uh, capable of recognizing fastballs at a very high rate, but the curveball or the slider is just not quite up to par. So from there, you might be able to work with them. I mean, it's slightly different than what they're doing in the NBA now or some teams are doing with, like, the, the bioanalysis, right? Because um, it's solely focusing on the brain, but it is sort of like it's almost like a prequel to what all of the data we then see on the court or, or on the field. But I'm wondering, like, and this is more of a broad question, and maybe, Chad, too, you can jump in, is is there any way to do this sort of brain analysis in any other sport, or is it simply because baseball has this one moment that you can actually analyze the decision-making process versus, like, would this even have any application in basketball yeah, or absolutely. in football and yeah, in other uh, sports? They, they're – uh, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're trying to get in that into that those different areas. In fact, they actually started. Um, they were when they were first, you know, coming up with the idea to maybe get involved with sports. These are two neuroscientists that were working uh, at Columbia. Um, they were studying decision making, uh, and they were also studying, you know, what exactly makes makes up the difference between an expert and a novice. So when they started to kind of come together and think, okay, maybe we could apply this to sports, they were thinking it might work with golf. Um, they sort of changed their mind on that uh, because how would it work uh, with golf? Well, it, it, they sort of decided that it wouldn't really work as well with with <laughs> golf as as it would with baseball. But um, it got their minds thinking that uh, there are there are plenty of other sports that this could this could absolutely apply to. I mean, if you you think like a quarterback um, who has mm-hmm. to read the field, who has to make decisions very quickly, um, basketball player, you know, running a transition, he's got to find the open guy, he's got to yeah. see the court. Um, they're even talking about working with police officers who have to make split-second decisions. About whether to pull a gun or, or whatnot. Exactly. Hmm. I mean, is it kind of like the very the, the Wonderlick test except in <laughs> actual data form? You know, because it's kind of – Wonderlick is kind of trying to measure a whole bunch of different things about a quarterback's ability. Yeah, and that right? has its own long history right. about maybe being a sham or <laughs> totally. not. Right? You can read about it on 538.com. Absolutely, but um, it, it seems like a new way to measure whatever these supposed intangibles you want in a quarterback. And there was even a story uh, this week about Jameis Winston and how Tampa had like gone and built some kind of simulator or licensed some kind of simulator to try to do this. It sounds like some version of this for football. Well, and this is what's really interesting to me about this whole sub-genre of analytics, I guess, which is that we're used to analytics being about um, the product, about what happens on the field, about, you know, we can say that someone bats 300, but his BABIP or his his work plus, uh, as, as we learned about last week, is, you know, whatever it is, 135. Um, but this is something that feels more about innate-ness, innate mm-hmm. talent, or, or innate self, and you know, you write in the piece that maybe this can be tweaked through various exercises or not, but it's it's interesting because we evaluate players based on, or athletes based on their innate physicality, but I don't think we're used to evaluating them on their innate intelligence or their innate brain makeup. And and if it moves into that direction, it does feel like a different 
approach towards scouting players. To yeah. be, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the quote, the million dollar brain. Um, what that sort of is getting at is that Mike Trout, let's just say, has a million dollar brain in, in, the, in terms of this, you know, uh, exercise. So if they were able to test him and analyze him using the EEG and the electrode cap, um, I'd surmise that he probably would, you know, uh, would, would score pretty well. I mean, I'm sure he's recognizing pitches right out of the pitcher's hand um, very quickly. Uh, and I'm sure he's pretty accurate about that, you know, 80 to 90 percent. So if you were to if they were able to score that, let's say at a level 10, 10 out of 10, Mike Trout being, being the best, um, their kind of idea is that there might be millions of people around the world who have that very same kind of innate pitch recognition ability, a 10 out of 10. And maybe they've never picked up a baseball bat before. But, you know, picking up a bat and learning to swing, um, these are physical uh, attributes that you can, I guess, you know, theoretically develop. Um, Just like those two pitchers from India never learned how to pitch before, but they both could throw 90 miles an hour. So a scout found them and is now teaching them how to pitch with some, you know. uh, It's interesting. It sort of suggests that at some point people who have some athletic talent will take some suite of tests in middle school or something and they'll be told which sport to go to because well, that already kind ha- of happens yeah. at like there are tests now where you you measure your you know lateral speed and mm-hmm. all kinds of different and they're like you should play soccer because right. there's a longer right. or tennis right. or i mean that already but it, obviously that this is to a much higher degree of specificity so zach in the piece you took this test do you have a million dollar brain <laughs> no no more like a uh, five dollar brain um, so what was it like to do, to take the test <laughs> it was it was fun uh it was very challenging i would say um you know it, it's it's a very basic simulation uh it's a white screen uh you're at a lot on the laptop and all it is is a green dot that comes exploding toward your face and, and you have to press a key you know when, when you decide to swing or not to swing um the reason you decide to swing is you're told what pitch to expect uh, as a countdown sort of like a three two one your fastball's coming and if it's a fastball then you swing um if it ends up moving like a curveball or moving like a slider you don't swing so that's that's the so you're trying to identify the pitch that you're told exactly to you. right um and you try and do this as quickly as as possible and obviously you want to be accurate so uh, I did this, you know, I, they do usually do about three trials of a total of about 90 pitches. Um, my first trial, I was, I was about 50% accurate. I was basically guessing. <laughs> you know, really, and the reason for that is it was very hard. Um, it came very quickly, and, you know, you're just looking at a white screen, so you don't see the pitcher's wind-up. You don't see – you can't follow the ball out of his glove. You can't, you know, you can't see the follow-through. And all those things are, are you know, extraordinarily important for, for a hitter to be able to hit. For the exercise, for the purpose of the exercise, just, you know, trying to measure that – only that decision-making time. Um, it's useful enough. So, do they plan to tweak the test to make it more like a simulating baseball? Or do they like the rudimentary nature of it? So, yeah, I think you know they're they're sort of working with players about that. Um, th- I think players uh, have told them that yeah, they'd prefer to make it more of a simulation, sort of like uh, you know they showed me one prototype they're working on. It's of Nationals Park in D.C. You see the flags waving, and you mm-hmm. have a pitcher standing there. Um, so they're, they're definitely going to toy around with that. But for the purposes of the exercise, they don't need anything more. Um, it's just a matter of comfort for the, for the player, you know, to feel comfortable playing the game. Yeah, cause, I mean, I imagine some players are great at reading, you know, the ball in the pitcher's hands or certain, like, cues that they've right. seen from a pitcher over 20 years of 
hitting that they're not getting in that simulation, which could affect their score. Yeah, I I think it could. Um, But, you know, these guys are doing enough trials that they feel like the hitter, the the batter is going to get used to it uh, over over you know, a certain amount of time. And like I said, it's, it's very simple. It's very basic. Um, so, and it's, it's, you know, almost purely just reaction time, but what they're not measuring the reaction time. They're measuring what's going on in the brain as they react. Got it. So how long until we know whether this is legit? Like, like <laughs> I, I mean, at some point, yeah. I mean, there, I, I was at the Sloan conference, the Sloan sports analyst conference last, the Daryl uh, Morey yeah, conference. I, I, you know, our listeners know what Sloan is That's on, right. on a first name basis. Uh, uh, last February or whatever it was, and the entire exhibitors hall was just filled with these companies who are promising to measure athletes in some way. Um, and at some point, this stuff becomes snake oil. And it's hard at first to know what's snake oil and what's, right. what's legit. So how do we, how do we know whether, whether this actually does have an impact or an effect on um, yeah on the quality of I mean I, I listen I, I tried to balance that in my, in my story I was I was constantly kind of you know thinking am I, what am I what am I writing about here is it actual actually legitimate um, and you know I I think it's going to take time I mean um, I, I wrote about these guys because what they're doing is unique um, compared to the other neuroscience companies that are sort of making games like Lumosity type brain training stuff um, so I like the fact that these guys were unique but yeah I mean it's it it's going to take time because they're working with teams kind of one go around. They've done one go around now. And now, you know, they're going to have to see results and the teams that they're working with are going to have to see results and they're going to have to come back to those teams and work with them again to see more results. So um, I, the last line in the piece uh, involves Jason Sherwin saying something about, you know, I'll to, saying to a scout, I'll see you in 10 years. Um, I don't think it'll be 10 years before we start seeing this more and more in Major League clubhouses, but it could be a few years. And maybe that even would tell you if it turns out not to be as correlated as they believe that it tells you how much pitch recognition makes a hitter, you know, how they are either a lot or maybe not as much. Um, so the important thing is we'll know one yeah. way or the other, it seems. Yeah, these aren't these guys aren't the only ones to study pitch recognition as a tool for measuring players. In fact, that's gone back many decades. Um, there's things called occlusion tests that have been going on that are, basically they have a, pitch, a video of a pitcher uh, releasing the ball and then they black out the screen uh, as soon as the ball is released and, and hitters are supposed to identify what pitch, where it's coming, you know, and how how fast you might be traveling, all these sorts of things. And so those sorts of tests have been going on for a long time. Um, and they've determined that, yeah, the best hitters tend to be the best at those pitch recognition um, drills. So, you know, this is, again, this this is different. This is measuring exactly. This is putting a quantifiable number next to how quickly those guys are recognizing pitches. All right. So, listeners, you can read Zach's piece on SB Nation, Take Me Out to the Brain Game. We'll also put a link to it on Hot Takedown's show page on 538. Zach, thanks so much for coming on. Thank really you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks. All right. Now, let's turn, as ever, to close out the show to Allison McCann, who brings us our significant digit, a telling number from something in the sports world this last week. Allison, welcome back to the show as ever. Hey guys, thanks for having me. What have you brought us today? I'm back with more soccer. You thought I was done. (laughs) Nope, never. (laughs) Um, This week's significant digit is a 34% increase, which is the average attendance uh, increase for the National Women's Soccer League in our post-World Cup era that we're living in now. The the pre-World Cup average was around 4,500 fans, um, and the post-World Cup 
uh, average attendance is now up to around 6,000. That's across all teams? Across all teams, right. And however, a big caveat with this uh, average number is the is the Portland Thorns, whose average attendance is usually, you know, hovers around 13,000, 14,000. So, you know, that's magnitudes more than the rest of the league. Without them, that league average would be closer to about 3,000, actually. Right, so this is a mean, not a median. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and their game tomorrow, actually, tomorrow night against their rival Seattle, looks like it's going to sell out with about 21,000 fans, which would be a league record. So uh, there is some discrepancy in this average, but it is interesting that we are we are seeing this post-World Cup um, rise across all the teams. So it, it is exciting, and hopefully it continues throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, and it was interesting because not all of the teams have their World Cup players even back yet. Like yeah. Some of them haven't even had their you know, welcome back game where they have, you know, Carly their Lord stars, and, all, yeah. and their stars, which you would af- assume to see a boost at. Um, but it, but even if, I mean, I don't think anybody even in our most optimistic look at it would think that that, that increase, that, you know, the 34% is going to, like, hold steady for the rest of the season. But even if you end up seeing it, like, settle down to something like – eight percent higher i mean that that's significant yeah for this league i think what would be big is if that league average number could get to about five thousand i think would be the goal and stay there steady across re- the rest of the teams that aren't portland if they you know everybody's right now around like three thousand four thousand and so if we see at these end of the season games if that gets to five thousand i think that would be really good for them what is going on with the the new jersey team why can they why is nobody going because i mean people love the the red bulls and you would think that new jersey seems to be a hotbed when they host like the world cup send-off games and all and when the u.s friendlies come through and nobody goes to the <laughs> to the sky blue games yeah because they're like not playing in like because accessible sky blue <laughs> accessible yeah. new jersey they're sky in blue fc they're like not in the Red Bull Stadium, right, where right, you could like, get to from the city, like, or in, like, I think they play at Rutgers sometimes, and mm-hmm. it's, like, mm-hmm. a two-hour drive, and, yeah, they're really not doing wonders for themselves. But to, to bring it back to Portland, and, uh, you know, you said that they were already by far the, the most attended team, but if they're drawing, you know, a, a 50% increase, so that's, uh, you mentioned 21,000 for their next game, and that's just one game, but uh, that, that suggests that, you know, you don't have to be afraid of diminishing returns because i would think that they having already had so many fans that they would have fewer extra fans to kind of add in their uh, their post world cup bump but the fact is that they are experiencing an even bigger bump than the average team in the league so maybe that gives encouragement that there's still uh, a lot of room to grow for even the teams that don't have the high attendances well when I think of Portland, and then Houston obviously does well, but not as good as Portland, then the next place I go is Kansas City because they are crazy about their MLS team, and they should be drawing better in Kansas City. And and some of the the problems with some of the teams that are like hovering in the two thousand or three thousand range, like it's 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 easy to say like oh they're fixable because we don't know how hard it is to get facilities and and certain marketing but like there seem to be fixes that could be made that could really help some of those franchises with their attendance like i can't imagine in kansas city if they put that team anywhere near where the mls team plays that people would not go if they just made it a little bit even talking to friends in kansas city they're like i don't even know where to find that team there seem to be like simple fixes to make to make this league take off yeah, I, I know they're not simple, you know, because I'm sure facilities are a huge problem, but it's like people want to find this stuff. Yeah. I think what was most interesting to me, though, is we are seeing this increase. We are exciting, but we're still not at 
post-99 World Cup levels. Like that first year of WUSA, the average attendance was still 8,000, which is something that none of these leagues have got up to. So hopefully, you know, yeah. these leagues can, can reach that level. Of but at least like their financial structures are better. Yeah. So it's like they, can, they can make it through some of these lean years. So, Allison, thanks as always for coming in. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne. Thanks, Chad. Are you still, are you still wearing the stat cape? No, I took it cape? off. Okay. I put it in the closet. I guess I could see that for myself. Uh, our podcast producer this week is Asa Chaturvedi, still with Jody Avergan in exile somewhere on some train in Scotland or something. Um, our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin. Once again, thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring the show. Remember, use the promo code TAKEDOWN to buy those Chicago Sky tickets on the SeatGeek app. You can email us at contact at 538.com. We love to hear what you think. You've been tweeting us, which has been great as well. Um, You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. Of course, we're on iTunes as well. You can subscribe at itunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. The theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.